It was a big chance he could have lost the entire investment. It was a chance. He played it up for all it was worth. But then he got the reputation for being a cynical showman. But that's only half the story. The second part of the story is genuine. He was against censorship. Even the casual classic Hollywood fan is familiar with at least one Otto Priminger film. Priminger directed and produced one of the best-loved films of Hollywood's golden age, the 1944 classic film noir, Lara. But the stellar career of this Viennese director with the legendarily explosive temper didn't stop there. And the accomplishments of Otto's nearly five decades as a filmmaker are nothing short of extraordinary. Always ahead of his time, Otto Preminger was one of the first independent producers and directors of classic Hollywood, casting aside the security of long-term studio contracts for the artistic freedom and rewards that came with risking it all on his own. In the process, Otto dealt the Production Code Administration and their arbitrary moral code major blows, refusing to conform his films to the code's extremely limited definition of what was permissible on screen. With such films as the courtroom drama Anatomy of a Murder and the political drama Advise and Consent, Otto became a public champion against censorship. He discovered three of the most ethereal actresses of the era who continue to captivate audiences today. Maggie McNamara in Preminger's The Moon is Blue, Dorothy Dandridge in Carmen Jones, and Gene Seberg in St. Joan. And with his spot-on portrayals of authoritative Nazis in such films as Stalag 17, Otto Preminger became a familiar face with moviegoers, an accomplishment very few directors of his time could claim. In this special episode of Vanguard of Hollywood, it's my great privilege to welcome film historian Foster Hirsch. Foster is a professor in the prestigious film studies program at Brooklyn College and the author of over a dozen books. As one of the foremost film interviewers, Foster has conducted insightful and nuanced interviews with such classic Hollywood luminaries as Maria Cooper Janis, Carol Baker, Don Murray, Julie Harris, Tab Hunter, and Christopher Plummer. He also possesses an incredibly impressive collection of Greta Garbo-owned items. Foster is the expert on the life and career of Otto Priminger, and now, Here's our discussion on Foster's gripping book, Otto Preminger, The Man Who Would Be King. Foster, you're joining me all the way from New York today. Yes. Is it a gorgeous autumn afternoon there? Absolutely beautiful. Yes. Oh, good. Well, Foster, I recently finished reading your incredible biography, Otto Preminger, The Man Who Would Be King. And I must tell you, I, I was sad to finish it. That's the type of book it was. That's the, I think that's the best compliment for a writer. And it's a long book, too. Yes. Well, you are the Priminger expert. And uh, it was just, it was a wonderful read. What drew you to write about Otto Priminger? Well, actually, two things. Uh, I'm old enough to have seen most of the films when they came out. And I always liked them. Film after film, I said... There's something about the way he directs, there's something about the way the films look, the subject matter. 
we're, we're, we're linked in some way. I, I responded to him. I, I just, it was a personal thing. I like his work. I like his procedure. It was also, I think he's a bit underrated and underappreciated. And I think part of that is because he became famous for having a terrible temper and the reputation of Otto the Terrible or Otto the Tyrant, I think overshadowed the actual accomplishment. And I thought it's only fair to look at the films and to see what's on screen, the offstage behavior and personality, which is very complex, mm -hmm. isn't beside the point, but it's not the main point. The main point to me is what's on the film. I think, and, and if I can branch out for a minute, yes, I think yes. it's a bit of a dangerous time when we focus on the character of the artist. And if we found a mistake in something they said or did 40 years ago, we cancel them. I think that's a dangerous route to take. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You do not have to be a perfect person. And who is that in order to be accepted as a serious artist? Look at the work. Look at the work. Was he a man who screamed? Was he a man who mistreated some of his people? Yes. Was he a man also capable of great generosity and charity and compassion? That too. He was both a comp he was a complex guy. The more I studied, the more I interviewed people, I saw the, com the complexity and the contradictions. Yes, and you do such a great job of presenting all facets of Priminger in your book. But let me start. Uh, I was absolutely fascinated. Um, I mean, you start from the beginning. You start with Otto's uh, youth in Europe. Um, he's born Poland, 1905. His parents are extraordinary people too. And um, I, I just, I had no idea. His father, Marcus, I mean, what an amazing man. A, an amazing man, high up in the Austrian government, uh, attorney general, a great legal mind. Uh, the, the, I guess the important point is that Otto was born to great wealth and he was a very wealthy man every day of his life. For some people, that's a hanging offense. It shouldn't be that he was born into a family that had a lot of money and a lot of power and a lot of position. They were Jewish, however. So when the Nazis began to rumble and to take over Austria, Otto very presciently thought, we have to leave. He got out and he got his family out. And even that, despite their prominence and their money, was difficult. They got out just in time. So he came to America, he appreciated the freedoms that we have here because he saw what happens when a country is overtaken. Right. Well, and, and let me ask you too, um, you know, Vienna. So, so he's, he's not born in Vienna, but he moves to, but, to Vienna when he's very he's young. Vienna, he's Viennese in his temperament, his yes. outlook, his entire approach. And if you've been to Vienna, you know what I mean. And that, that, Quality, which I'll define in a minute, underwrites all of his work. Have you been to Vienna? I have, yes. There is a kind of, it's wonderful, the coffee culture, the coffee house culture, but there's a kind of ceremony and formality. And that quality is in all of the work. Otto's work has a formality to it and a ceremonial quality. And that comes from his Viennese background. 
I'm convinced that underneath everything, there's this Viennese love of display and procession and formality and culture. One of my interviewees gave me a wonderful description. She said that whenever she met Otto, he was so august and European, she felt she had to curtsy. Oh, wow. (laughs) She wanted to curtsy. Wow. Wow. His European qualities, enormous charm, Mm -hmm. enormous uh, sense of fun, but also a certain rigor and formality. He wasn't quite American, so I felt I had to curtsy to him. (laughs) Well, and um, would you say, too, um, you describe uh, Vienna and, and his family just being this family of cultural connoisseurs. And, uh, and they really take advantage of, of all of that rich culture that Vienna has to offer. His parents do as they're raising Otto and, and his brother, um, Ingo. Um, so would you say that that too, just being around the, the opera, um, these, these plays, do you think that influenced Otto's decision to become a filmmaker and, uh, and pursue a career on stage as well? Well, he was, he was a man of enormous cultivation, having been taken into the theater, to opera, to, to the great theaters of, of Vienna from childhood. But his initial goal was to become an actor. That surprised me so much. Yes, he was stage struck. And he saw the productions of the National Theater and he saw the great plays, his love of Shaw and all of the great playwrights came from that period. And his first impulse was to be an actor. His father was very upset. And they made an arrangement because his father was a great legal mind. He said, Otto, I can't do anything for you unless you agree first to get a law degree. So Otto has a doctor of law degree from the University of Vienna. Otto Bremen was a lawyer. Wow. Yeah. So technically he's Dr. Otto Preminger. He's a lawyer. He's Dr. Otto Preminger. He's a doctor of law. Then, after that, he was allowed to go and study acting with the bar. His father kept his word. But Otto realized early on, because he was had great self-awareness, that his skills as an actor were limited. And at one point later on, he said, after all, how many Nazis can you play? Yeah. <laughs> he didn't have a lot of strings on his bow. Have you seen his Nazi comedy? Yes. Yes. And I got to say, I, I think he does a pretty good job. He's very, yes, that um, he really comes off as authoritative. And uh, I don't know, he just, he really, he had a knack for it. He was, he was terrific in that role, but sort of that was the role. Right. He he did it as a favor to his friend, Billy Wilder. He was a director at that point, but he lost the acting bug and recognized that his true talents were as a director and as a producer. Right. You mentioned in the book that um, one of kind of the, uh, the push factors for him out of acting and, and, and recognizing these talents that he had for uh, directing, producing, administrating, uh, was the fact that he, he went bald very young, didn't he? He did. He went bald very young and he he took a look and he said he was not going to get cast in romantic leads, that he had a certain look and the loud, booming voice. And as you say, the authoritative manner, Mm -hmm. he was going to get typecast. And he thought he has more to do. He's more to say 
than to play that role over and over. And so he switched. And immediately his, his directing skills, but as you mentioned, his administrative skills. He, even people, and there are some who don't particularly like him, his work as a director, everybody admits he was a great producer. Yes. Well, and um, when Otto makes the switch from acting to, to directing and, and producing, that's still all in Vienna. And, and his stage career in Vienna was actually what ultimately drew him to the attention of, of Hollywood and proved his segue uh, to film. Absolutely. A, a, in those days, the major studios sent scouts to European capitals to find talent that could that be imported to Hollywood. A scout for Daryl Zanuck at Fox saw Otto's productions in Vienna and thought, this man's talented. And he made him an offer to come to Fox in Beverly Hills. And Otto, seeing an opportunity, took it. Also, he realized that being Jewish in Vienna was getting more and more dangerous. This was 1934. He was ahead of the curve. His family still remained behind. But he thought this was the moment to take that opportunity. And he did. So really perfect timing in as far as his career goes and also for his safety uh, to come to, to America when he did. Um, and I think it's interesting, you know, we've touched on his, his temper. This, this temper is a quintessential aspect of, of Otto Preminger. And it actually almost ends up being the demise of his Hollywood career uh, not too far into it. He's got this promising start and then... A promising start. It's clear he's talented. He has a, an argument with Daryl Zanuck. And apparently the argument was so loud that the walls all throughout Fox were ringing from the screams. And Zanuck banished him from Fox. And Otto's career seemed to be over. He went to New York and did some plays, which had some prominence. Daryl Zanuck was known as very fair. He gave Otto a second chance. And Otto said, that man was absolutely decent. He, 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 he made my comeback possible. And the film that he came back with is the classic film, War, Laura. Yes, so, yes. But he couldn't have done it without Zanuck forgiving him for the temper explosion. Right. With Laura... He, he also, it, it's a segue back to Hollywood, but he comes back with this kind of unique um, contract, right? He, he's recognized that just being a director is one thing, but if, if he's able to produce as well, that's really where the future is at. Exactly. He saw that the future of filmmaking in Hollywood was not going to be the major studio system. It was going to be an independent production. And he became one of the pioneer independent producers, but he couldn't do that full time until he worked out his contractual obligations to Fox right. and Zach. So he didn't become a full-time producer of his own work until uh, the early to mid fifties. But at Fox, as you mentioned, he uh, was able, in most cases, to become the producer as well as the director of the film. Right. And on Lara, he almost is only the producer, right? At first, Zanuck says, you can produce, but uh, you're not directing. You're not directing. Ruben Mamoulian was the director. Yeah. And as it worked out, the footage that 
Rupert Mamoulian was turning in wasn't quite right. And Otto has this wonderful comment. Um, he said, I saw Mamoulian's footage and he didn't quite get the material. This is a story about rich, snobby, difficult people, a swarm of snakes in a way. He said, Ruben Mamoulian was a nice guy. He didn't know that society. I'm not nice and I know rich people like this. I've lived my entire life among them. Yeah. He's playing it up for what it was worth. But in fact, he had the right touch for that material and Rupert Mamoulian didn't. Vanek saw that. Vanek saw, looked at what was going on. He saw that, that Otto had the, the better approach. Speaking of Otto having the, uh, the best approach for the film, um, I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, for, for every person there was who had issues with his temper, um, as you mentioned, there was, there was another person who complimented his professionalism and generosity. And one of those people was Jean Tierney, who she's the star of Laura. She loves working with Otto and she calls him in her autobiography, a complete gentleman who not only held the cast and crew together, but took what might've been a good movie and turned it into something special. And she literally called it the, the Priminger touch. What elements of that Priminger touch should viewers look for when they watch Laura? Well, the, the film has a silky smoothness to it with wonderful gliding camera work, which was auto specialty. His camera work was choreographed. It's like a dance. It's also very controlled. He was a man who lost his temper, but his work on film, I think there's a connection. It's extremely controlled. He couldn't stop yelling, but when he made each shot, it was manicured. And for some people, the work seemed too formal or controlled. It's, it, it's my taste. I love it. Mm -hmm. But he's not a, um, a free and easy filmmaker. There's a, there's a tightness and you sense that somebody's in charge. And that, that was part of the touch, the gliding camera work, plus the ambivalent characters. You like them and you don't. You have very mixed reactions about them. And he was able to capture the darkness of film noir and the encroaching darkness. And after all, it's about a character, the, the detective played by Dana Andrews, who oh. falls in love with a dead woman. And he's, he's enamored of her portrait in the living room. And that looming portrait, uh, he, the, the detective has got his problems too. And, but what I did want to say about Jean Tierney, which she brought out Otto's kindness and generosity. Mm -hmm. Jean Tierney had a number of issues in her life, mental issues and emotional issues. There was confinement, there were breakdowns. Otto always treated her with exquisite care and compassion, always. And when he brought her back after a long period of confinement and advising consent in the early 60s, everybody on that film said he treated her like royalty and asked mm. everybody to be gentle and kind to her. He was extraordinarily protective. That's the other side of the man who yelled and screamed. Same man. Right. Same man. Of course, Jean Tierney was enormously grateful to him. He saved her career more than once enormously patient with her. And she was a deep, beautiful, talented, deeply troubled woman. Right. Well, and I, I love, I love that example. Just what, what a great example of, of, uh, you know, that, 
the, the temper on one side, but such a, a thoughtful and loyal friend on the other. Absolutely. A loyal friend. When he was your friend, he was your friend. He didn't change. Could he yell and scream at you one day? Yes. But, it, but you know, when a person has that kind of explosive temper, they let it out. So after they've screamed and yelled, they're fine. They're ready to move on to the next chapter. You may be cringing and hurt and wounded, but they've let it out. Right. They, they move on. I, I mean, I've noted that with people who have explosive tempers. They don't hang on to it. Whereas the repressed people who don't let it out, they can stay angry forever. Otto let it out at the moment, and he wasn't angry anymore. He went on to the next chapter. And kind of speaking of next chapters, so so Laura ends up being really the hallmark film of his contract, the contract that he signs with, with Fox in 1942. And he really isn't given another opportunity to make a film that, that matches Laura's artistry and success at the box office. But something that I noticed about Otto Priminger uh, from reading your book is that Whenever he kind of reached um, a, a stalemate in his career, he was a master at redirecting. He, he loses his hair at a very young age, can't be an actor anymore, realizes he's limited, so he goes to directing. He gets to Hollywood, Zanuck basically blacklists him, he goes to Broadway. So now he reaches kind of this, this, this tough spot uh, after Laura, and this is when he really, as we discussed earlier, he really starts to set himself up on the path to become an independent uh, yes, producer. How, how unique was he in seeking this independence and in recognizing that it was possible? Well, as I say, he saw early on that independence was the wave of the future, but he also did something very clever. His first major independent production was The Moon is Blue, which I suspect to a lot of your audience is a title they may not be familiar with. Right. It was a landmark film, not because of the quality of the film. It's a minor comedy of manners. It's a minor film, and many people would find it arch and stilted. But it was a film that dealt in a very cavalier way with sexual manners, and it used words like virgin and seduce, which in 1952 were forbidden words. They could not be mentioned on a Hollywood screen. Sounds naive to us now, but that was, that was a violation. And the uh, Motion Picture Production Code would not give the film its seal of approval unless Otto took out some of the offensive words. Otto refused. And he said, it's not because these few words would undermine my minor. He, and he knew it was a slight comedy. But he said, if you start on the path to censorship, which he felt that, that was, that could lead to very dangerous places and abrogation of human rights. And he said, I saw that the path that was taken in Vienna and Austria. I stand up for freedom of speech. He wasn't claiming this was a great film. He was claiming he demanded freedom of speech. He released the film without the production code seal of approval. It was a huge victory over censorship. And the film did well. So people said, oh, he did it just because he was, um, it was uh, cynical. It was a businessman's move. 
you know what? It was. But it was also a principled move against censorship. There's where this and that, it's not either or with Otto, it's and. It was two things. It was a very savvy showman's movement to release the film. It was a big chance. If he, if he had been working for Fox, Fox wouldn't have done it. It was a big chance. He could have lost the entire investment. It was a chance, but he played it up for all it was worth. And it worked as a model of bravura showmanship. But then he got the reputation for being a cynical showman. But that's only half the story. The second part of the story is genuine. He was against censorship. And the moon is blue. Um, you know, that's really that's just the tip of the iceberg for him. You know, this is like you said, he, he has these press conferences before the film is released where where he he warns against. Uh, I think he even calls the production code administration an evil institution. And he just coming from coming from Vienna and, and uh, seeing what censorship can do. He is incredibly passionate about not letting it take over the films. His stance against censorship was sincere. It was not a ruse. He also realized that standing up to the code might lead to some good box office. He was right on both counts. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. (laughs) After all, he, he was not in a chair. He wasn't in a charitable activity. He was in a business that had to make profits and he was interested in making profits. So he was a great showman. So it was two things at the same time. And then he does it again with the man with the golden arm. Yes, man with the golden arm. And he chose the subject in a way to defy the production code. It was about drug addiction. In 1955, that was a verboten subject. Same thing, released the film without the code, stood up to censorship boards. The film did very well financially. And it was also well received artistically. It is not one of Otto's better films, actually. (laughs) I don't think it's so good, but it did what it was supposed to do. And Otto Preminger's stance led ultimately to the end of the production code and to open, opening the screen to a wider range of mature material. That's yeah. Otto Preminger. Yeah. And, and just, just to underscore what a big deal this was, um, you know, for any listeners who are less familiar with, with the production code administration, I mean, this was... This was the the organization that created this really arbitrary moral code that was enforced from 1934 to 1968. And Otto Priminger was the first filmmaker to really just, I mean, put a nail in the coffin. Yes, but to stand, to nail in the coffin, yes, to stand up to the tyranny of the code and say, I'm willing to release my films without the code of approval. It's huge. And he had the backing of a new reorganized studio, United Artists, which supported him. Fox or one of the bigger uh, major studios would have been afraid to do that most likely. Yeah. United Artists was itself being reimagined by two lawyers. And so it was a good moment for Otto and the lawyers to get together to stand up against censorship. And speaking of that, if I can just make another important uh, point for what Otto did, it was Otto Preminger who ended the blacklist. Yes. When he chose Dalton Trumbo to write the screenplay for Exodus, he said, I'm going to give this man screen credit. Dalton Trumbo was one of the Hollywood 10. He was blacklisted. He had gone to jail. He was 
contempt of Congress. He was blacklisted. And if he worked, and he did in the 50s, he was always under a front or a pseudonym. Yeah. And Otto said, I disagree with his politics. Otto was absolutely an anti-communist through and through. Belton Cromwell had been a communist. I said, I don't agree with this man's politics. I think his politics are on the wrong side of history, but I think they're irrelevant. He's not trying to overthrow the country. He wrote me an excellent screenplay and he deserves credit for his work and the discussion. And that's something Otto Priminger was so good at at separating, as you say, you know, he was not a communist, but he recognized yeah. the issue. It's not about communism. It's about the blacklist and blacklist. But again, that kind of censorship yes. that he saw, what that does to a country in his native Austria, well, not native, but almost native Austria, yes. he saw what censorship could lead to. Yeah. He saw the bigger picture and it, it wasn't about politics. It was about censorship. He didn't care about Trumbull's politics. On a personal level, he absolutely disagreed with him, but he didn't care. He said the man wrote an excellent screenplay, which he certainly did. Exodus is beautifully written. He deserved credit. Now, nine months later, Kirk Douglas gives Otto, gives uh, Dalton Trumbull screenplay credit for Spartacus. To the end of his long life, which was 103 or 104, Kirk Douglas claimed that he broke the blacklist. He did not. He did not. Otto Preminger broke, broke the blacklist in January, and then Kirk Douglas spoke up in September. January 1960 comes before September 1960. Yeah. Kirk Douglas did absolutely the right and necessary thing, but he couldn't have done it without the first move having been made by Preminger. Right. I think I remember reading in, in your book that Dalton Trumbo and his wife recognized that, and they remained very loyal to Otto for being the first. They remained loyal to Otto when Mrs. Trumbo, after her husband's death, publicly said many times, it was Otto Preminger, not Kirk Douglas, who broke the blacklist. It was Otto who first put my husband's name on the screen. I love that. I love the, the loyalty reciprocated. That's, that's really neat. Absolutely. Well, I think it's interesting too, you know, we, we've talked about how he was, Otto Preminger was very genuine in his beliefs and he genuinely was, was against censorship. But as you've mentioned, you know, he, he also recognized um, the publicity uh, benefits of being public with, with this. And really just overall, Otto was just a master of publicity. I think his brother actually called him that. And I just, I think about his discovery, how he discovers Gene Seberg for 1957, St. Joan. I mean, that whole process, that was a genius publicity stunt, if you will. But it actually wasn't a stunt. He wanted to cast an unknown as Shaw's St. Joan. He wanted an actress that audiences had never seen before. And he held an international search with great publicity. And he, he ended up choosing Gene Seberg from Marshalltown, Iowa. And it was, it, the publicity was enormous. When the film opened, uh, Gene and the, and the film itself did not get such good reviews. And it didn't do well financially. But the publicity leading up to it was bravura. It was, a, it was masterful. 
Right. And, and I think you mentioned in, in, in your book that, I mean, there, there are over 18,000 applicants, you know, he auto auto puts the word out that he's searching for a 19 year old uh, actress to play St. Joan and gets all of these applications. He's going through them all. What do you think it is that made Gene Seberg special? Well, I've thought a lot about that because you can look at St. Joan and see she's not, doesn't have the depth for the part. She doesn't have the technical preparation. There's an awkwardness. And yet there's something so persuasive about her. Mm -hmm. You can't take your eye off her. What Otto Preminger saw in Gene Seberg, I see in Gene Seberg. Then you see her, he gives her another chance in Bonjour Christesse. Yes. The following year. And she's this little girl from Iowa playing a French woman on the Riviera. Obvious miscasting. And again, the performance is awkward and technically undernourished and unprepared. And then you look at the film. You can't take your eyes off her. You, no matter what she's doing, she's interesting. She's riveting. Yeah. She has a ravishing presence, an interesting voice. And then that film fails too. But Jean-Luc Godard saw something in her and cast her as the ingenue in Breathless. Yeah. And everybody said she's fabulous in that. And Otto is one of my favorite quotes in the book. Otto said, well, I was right about Gene Seberg after all, wasn't I? Yes, yes. And just another example of him, you know, he sees something uh, that others don't in this case in Gene Seberg, and he is right. I think she had a, a unique quality. I think I love Gene Seberg. Is she a little amateurish and awkward and miscast in both St. Joan and Bonjour Tristesse? Yes. But is she effective nonetheless? I think if you look at those films fairly without the uh, preconception of the bad reviews, I think the answer is yes. You can see what he saw in her. Oh, yeah. He had something. Yeah. That she had a tragic life. Yes, she did. Short, short, tragic life. And I wondered if, in retrospect, she would have thought, was the day that Otto Preminger chose me to play St. Joan really the luckiest day of my life, or maybe was it not? Right. Took her out of Marshalltown, Iowa, and it threw her into a world that perhaps it was too challenging or too difficult or too filled with too many temptations. It's a tragic story, and she's been the subject of a musical, and, and, and many books have been written about her. She's a fascinating figure. It was auto covered her. As we're on the topic of, of Jean and, and uh, Bonjour Tristes, um, I, I'm embarrassed to say I actually just watched the film for the first time just a few weeks ago. It's one of yes, I've been wanting to watch it for years and it finally happens. And um, I, I think the film showcases, I mean, showcases many of Otto's gifts as a producer, um, as a director, but um, one of them that we haven't yet talked about was his amazing ability to stay on time and on budget with all of his films. And you look at Bonjour Tristesse and, and you see just the, the sheer physical beauty of the location, the costumes, the actors. It's just, it's a luscious film. And yes. it does not look like Otto did this on a budget. What, what do you think his secret was for consistently just producing these beautiful films 
on a budget. Well, he, he, he was a genius as an administrator. He could absolutely set a budget and a timetable and would always, every time, fulfill it. Would always come in under budget and exactly on time or before. Even the people who had trouble dealing with him because of the temper said he was totally reliable. He, he would never go over budget. He was the most reliable producer in Hollywood. He did Exodus, an enormously expensive and ambitious uh, epic film, in a record amount of time on a, a budget that he knew in advance he could stay within. He, he, had a, he was a genius as, as, a, as an orchestrator. But I think you see the talent for orchestration in the mise-en-scene of his films, in the control and the elegance. You always feel in good hands with Otto. I love that. That's a great way of putting it. There's somebody in charge. Yeah. Somebody in charge who knows what he's doing, who knows what he wants to do. It may not be to everybody's taste, and it wasn't. Not everybody shares our enthusiasm. I'm hoping after uh, people read the book who think, well, maybe I'm not too interested, they may find that they are interested and, and, and want to look at his films. And his films repay study and re-seeing. Yeah. The of my uh, paperback is called uh, On Second Look. And I feel that his work deserves that. The second look and the third look. Want, I was hoping you are going to mention uh, Dorothy Dandridge and, and uh, Carmen Jones and Porky and Bess. Yes. I actually, you're, you are like perfect segue for me. It was actually <laughs> where I was going <laughs> next. Perfect. So yes, I'm, I am a huge Dorothy Dandridge fan. Um, I just, I think she was so talented. Um, there's such a vulnerability to her. Of course, she's drop dead gorgeous. Um, Dorothy did it all. And, and Otto was such an important figure in her life. Um, what, what do you think it was that he saw in Dorothy that, cause you know, he, he really, he gave her her chance at stardom with Carmen Jones. What do you think he saw in her? He saw an, a titanic and unfettered sexuality. Yeah. Remember that Black women at that time were, had very few opportunities, and they were, they were presented in roles that constrained them and stereotyped them. And here was a story of a woman who had great sexual confidence and great sexual power, and she's a black woman, and so the, the sexuality gives her agency. He saw that quality in Dorothy Dandridge at the first audition. He saw that she had that smoldering power, but he also saw the great pain. Yeah. And it's interesting that his the three discoveries of Otto Preminger, Gene Seberg, Maggie McNamara for The Moon is Blue, and Dorothy Dandridge for Carmen Jones, all committed suicide. Wow. wow. They were all tragic figures. I don't want to over psychoanalyze because I don't have all the information, but clearly at some level, Otto was drawn to beautiful women who were troubled and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. his, his, his interest in Gene, Gene Tierney yeah. fits that pattern. But after all, when Carmen Jones was released, it was it broke so many taboos. It was an all black film from a major studio. 
and it presented a black woman as having sexual agency and power. And it's an extraordinary performance. And she was the first black woman to be nominated for Best Actress. Yes. Well-deserved, if I may add. Oh, I just, Dorothy is electric in Carmen Jones. You, You cannot take your eyes off her from the first second she's on screen. And then, and they did have a, a relationship um, off screen. Right. Uh, it ended not so well, but for a long time, they were very close and she was dependent on Otto. He really helped her. And then he casts her again in Porgy and Bess. And I've become a kind of champion of that film. I sometimes feel like I'm a lone wolf because a lot of people hate it, but people are not going to have any chance to see it. You've never seen it, I'm sure. I have seen it, actually. Yes. Circumstance. Well, um, I found a copy of it on eBay for sale a couple of years ago. And um, I didn't realize at the time how rare it was. I just knew, oh, my goodness, Sidney Poitier and Dorothy Dandridge in a film together. I'm seeing this. And then I found out when I did a podcast series on Dorothy Dandridge last year, and I found out about her life and her career. And, and I realized all of the controversy surrounding this film and how difficult it is to find. It, 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 it's impossible to find. And you would have seen a bootleg copy, which is not professionally made. In a way, you haven't really seen the film because it was designed for a huge Tadeo curved screen, wow. six magnetic stereo, luscious color cinematography by Leon Shamroy. So you saw a very blurry facsimile. Yes, yes, there, it is that. It is that. The film is tangled in legal issues, and I believe it will never be seen again. It is a lost film. There are only a few prints in the world, and one of them um, is from the Finnish archive. One of them is is in the hand of a German collector with German subtitles. There is no pristine original Tadeo print in the world. It's lost as both a physical object but also because it's entangled in the rights issues of the Gershwin estate and the Goldwyn estate. And the Goldwyn estate has told me, because I've arranged to get screenings, that no more. Wow. The film is, not, is most likely not ever going to be seen again. Wow. Do you have an opinion as, as to why these legal issues are, are so prohibitive? It was a bad luck production from the very beginning. The first day of shooting, the set burned down. Oh, my goodness. And they never found out the cause of it. It was suspicious. The film was accused of virulent racism and racist stereotyping. I don't see why the film is attacked for this reason. And productions of Porgy and Bess appear on opera houses throughout the world. Why aren't those productions attacked as racist? Why are they given a pass? And... Poor Otto uh, Preminger's film is attacked as a work of ugly racism, racist stereotyping. It, it doesn't seem fair. And anyway, I think Otto would be appalled not showing the film as a form of censorship. Exactly. And Otto hated censorship. He would be appalled to think that one of his films had, in effect, been censored. Yeah. And that's what this is. Censorship. You can't see it. It doesn't mean you have, when you see the film, you have to agree with me and think it's great. See the film and react any way you want to. Right. Yeah. And the main thing is that people are, are not being given the opportunity to do this. 
I, I did arrange a screening at the Cleveland Cinematheque. The audience sold out, loved it. Uh, shown at the Walter Reed Theater two years ago. I think that will be the last screening. Um, I think by and large, the audience loved it. I can see why you might make objections to it, but show it, put it out there. Let people decide for themselves. Otherwise, frankly, it is censorship. Yeah. I think it's a beautiful film that demonstrates Otto's strengths, long takes, long shots. There isn't a close-up in the film. Otto didn't like close-ups and he didn't like cutting. He thought every cut was an interruption. And he's a man after my own aesthetic heart. I love long takes and the contemporary style of cut, 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 cut every half second. And the camera never stops moving and close-up, close-up, close-up. When I go to see a film at IMAX and it's nothing but close-ups, I said, the director doesn't know how to use the widescreen. Yeah. You don't use close-ups on the widescreen. You step back and use long shots. Otto understood that. Yeah. It's not the modern style, not the contemporary style. Touching on on Dorothy's uh, personal relationship with Otto. So at the time that they are are together, um, as you mentioned, they they fall in love during Carmen Jones and they have a rather long-term relationship. But Otto at the time is married to his second wife, Mary Gardner Preminger. And from what I gather from the book, it wasn't the happiest of marriages. So what what do you think it was that kept Otto from leaving his wife for Dorothy? Because from everything that I've read from the Dorothy Dandridge perspective, she would have loved to marry him. She would have loved to marry him. People said, oh, Otto was worried about being married to a black woman just the opposite. He might have married a black woman to make a point. He was a lifelong member of the NAACP. Ossie Davis told me, and Ruby Dee told me directly, Otto was more invested in black issues than we were. He was was absolutely committed to fair treatment for all. He wouldn't have recognized racism. It was not part of his arsenal. He would have married her in a minute. Skin color would have had nothing to do with it. But he saw he saw that she was a deeply troubled woman. And he felt that he would not have been able to really help her ultimately, that it would have taken him into deep waters that he might not have been able to, to navigate. He loved her and he appreciated her talent and her artistry. And she was a great film star. And it's the tragedy of that period that there weren't more parts then for a woman of color. Yes. There weren't more parts for her. She played in some inferior material. She accepted what was was offered, and it wasn't a a lot. She deserved far more. Yeah. There was something inside her that Otto saw, a deep-seated insecurity and sorrow. I think Otto probably anticipated that this might be a woman who would commit suicide. I think he was afraid of her emotionally. Yeah. It, the skin color had absolutely nothing to do with his withdrawing. That was not the point. He saw the, the emotional vulnerability, and I think that scared him. His third wife, Hope Preminger, a very strong woman, had a wonderful relationship. Otto was a great family man. He was a great husband, a great son, a great brother, a great father. His twins adore him to this day. Eric Lee Preminger, his son with uh, Gypsy Rose Lee, said he was a great father. So he, you know, he, was a, he was a family man. 
with commitment to his family, and family was more important to him than anything else in the end. That's great. And his two greatest films we haven't touched on. Yeah, let's do it. Anatomy of a Murder, which is about the American legal system, and as far as I'm concerned, is a masterpiece about American law made by a lawyer. A film about trial by jury made by a lawyer. It's a beautiful representation of our justice system. And then advising consent about the American political system made by an outsider who was a very loyal American. And he said, is the American system perfect? No, it is not. But it is the best system of government that has ever been devised so far in world history. He loved our system of checks and balances. And that's what advising consent is about. Anybody listening, the essential films for auto are Laura, Exodus, Anatomy of a Murder, Advice and Consent. Four masterworks. Yes. Yeah. Anatomy of a Murder is one of my favorite movies, period. It is a masterpiece. And I, I would say James Stewart's finest performance. Oh, yes. Amazing. Yes. Oh, I'm, I'm such a Jimmy Stewart fan. And that film... He does such a great job, I think, combining, you know, I kind of look at at Jimmy's career in in two sections. You've got your pre-World War II Jimmy Stewart, who's very boyish and charming and lovable. And uh, then you have your post-World War II. He comes back after being a bomber pilot in World War II. And um, there's there's a new depth and maturity. And I feel like in Anatomy of a Murder, you get both. You know, you see... Yeah, sometimes in the scenes with Lee, Lee Remick in the film, you know, that boyish quality comes out. He clearly thinks she's cute. But then in the courtroom, something else comes out. Yes. More calculating and devious with little interesting dark touches. Yes, it is a perfect performance. I wanted to ask you too. So Otto worked with Marilyn Monroe in 1954 on River of No Return. And I wanted to see if you could fact check a story for me. Um, Shelly Winters says that she was on location in the Canadian wilds at the same time as Marilyn and Otto filming her own Western epic, um, 1954's Saskatchewan. And she claims to have witnessed Otto's temper on the set, which as you cover in the book was directed at Marilyn on this film. But as Shelly tells it, Marilyn seeking to gain sympathy, thought that Shelly had this really good idea when she said, hey, well, you know, you'll probably get some sympathy if you act like you break your ankle. And so according to Shelly Winters, this, uh, this cast that Marilyn wore on her ankle during filming was not necessary. She was pretending to have uh, hurt her ankle to gain sympathy. I wanted to see in your research of Otto, did you find anything that could confirm or refute this, uh, this story? Because Shelley Winters has been known to embellish. <laughs> I haven't come across that. I tend not to believe it. I don't, I, I don't think it's accurate. And I would not rely on Shelley Winters as a yes. reliable <laughs> at all. At all. I would discount that. But what I yes. tell you is Marilyn and Otto were oil and water. Yeah. Otto was an autocrat. He believed in punctuality, professionalism, be there on time. Marilyn was chronically late, chronically neurotic, and her neuroticism almost broke the scales for Otto. 
He couldn't handle it. She infuriated him. She couldn't remember her lines. She had a, a, an acting coach on the set with her the whole time. And Harold got her off the set. He screamed and yelled at Marilyn. He couldn't bear the woman. But in later years after her death, he began to talk more sympathetically about her. His tune changed. And he said she was very troubled and she was dealing with a lot. And in retrospect, he has compassion for her. And that sounds like Otto, yelling and screaming at the time, but <laughs> over time, calming down and seeing Marilyn almost from her own point of view, the challenges that she was facing. Right. She wasn't happy in that film. She didn't want to make the film. She's not all that good in it. She over-articulates. But the film is very famous for its early use of CinemaScope, beautiful use of widescreen. It's not one of Marilyn's happiest moments. And ironically, the director couldn't stand her, but Robert Mitchum didn't like her. She wasn't his type. So she had men against her. They didn't like her and they weren't drawn to her. And she must have felt that, certainly. Yeah. So it, for her, it was a nightmarish experience. Interesting. Nightmarish. I don't think Otto would have put up with the cast on the foot. That doesn't ring true. I, have, I haven't heard anything of that. I'm going to say yeah. That doesn't sound like the real thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Shelly. <laughs> well, Foster, as we kind of wrap up, um, I wanted to ask you a, a few questions about Otto Priminger, the man, and Otto Priminger, the filmmaker. So my first question is about, as, as we've discussed, you know, the, the temper versus the generosity. Um, I love how you quote graphic designer Saul Bass in, in your book. He says that the truth of the matter is that those qualities that made Otto difficult also made him a man that you could count on. I would have trusted my life with him, and I know he always would have saved me no matter what. You juxtapose that with the, the negative things, you know, people saying, oh, well, the real off-screen Otto Priminger was actually not too far off from the Nazis he portrayed so great. Um, I, I just would love to get your opinion after your years of, of thoughtful research and really getting to know him, which description, is there a witch or, or are both of those just so intertwined in, in the man, Otto Priminger? I think they're very intertwined, but the quote that you read from Saul Bass, which is a terrific quote, um, I think says a lot. Yes, he was extremely difficult, but the difficulties were part and parcel of what was also so trustworthy. And Saul Bass, other people said, I would have trusted that man with my life. He was going to scream, he was going to be difficult, you couldn't control him, and he would have been there to rescue you if it was a matter of life and death. I would have trusted that man with my life. I think that says a lot. Yeah. So would you say that you ultimately came away from writing The Man Who Would Be King liking Otto Priminger man. I certainly came away from the book admiring the filmmaker. His style is a style, long takes, uh, long shots, ceremonial camera work, formality, very, very compatible with me, my taste. I admire him as a filmmaker, extraordinary, to an extraordinary degree. As the man, I do have mixed feelings. I think there was genuine kindness, but there could be real cruelty. He would choose somebody on a set who was vulnerable and then would attack that person 
I'm doing an, an event in New York on December 7th with uh, the Film Forum with Keir DeLay, who is the star of Bunny Lake is Missing. And Keir DeLay gives a great performance in that film just before he went on to do uh, Space Odyssey. And he said it was terrifying to work with Otto because he felt he always had to watch his back, that Otto was going to attack him. He didn't trust him. He, he said even worse than the screaming was the sarcasm. Hmm. Apparently Otto chose Keir as the it person on the set. And was not and was harsh on him. He said the man drove him crazy, and there was real sarcasm and cruelty. So, do I like him unreservedly? No, I can't. He's a very complicated person, and part of that complication, trying to figure it out, how could he be so wonderful to Gene Tierney and so nasty to Keir Delay? Now, it helped. Keir Delay gives a terrific performance but he suffered making that film. From, suffered working with a director he, he simply didn't trust. Yeah. How could, it's the same person. Where is the truth? It depends on the, uh, on the moment who you talk to, the personality. I'm assuming Otto made judgments about who he could go after and who he couldn't, which is not a very attractive trait. Yeah. So, very complicated man. I don't think one response is the way to go. It has to be and. He was this and he was that and he was that. <laughs> yes. And a complicated mixture. Yeah. And yeah. that's why he was good company for a long time. And that's why now that the paperback has come out after a number of years after the original publication, I've been re-engaging with Otto. And he's never tiresome. You know, he gives you so much to think about. In his material, you see anatomy of a murder and you want to discuss it afterwards because there's nothing is simple and clear cut. Yeah. Complicated. You have to discuss it and think about it. The man was complicated. So in a way, I guess I can say this, you're never through with Otto. You're sort of never finished with him. You can't put him aside. Where can listeners wanting to learn more about Otto's life and career, where can they find your book? Here it is. Nice cover. Yes, it is. Yeah. I, it is. It's a gripping cover too. Yeah, captures your attention. It's a very nice cover. Uh, it's it, it should be in all bookstores and uh, on Amazon. Yes, yes, I've seen it on Amazon, um, and I've also seen it on the University Press of Kentucky website. Yes, um, as Press of Kentucky. Yeah, and as you mentioned, a beautiful paperback edition with your thoughtful new preface has just come out. And it's, it's heavy in the hand. So they're charging a, a fair amount for it, but it's a lot to read here. <laughs> it's, and it is well worth it. It is a gripping read. And, and again, I could not put it down and I was sad to finish it. Oh my, thank you. That's a great compliment. Thank you so much. Foster, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such a joy and an absolute privilege. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening from. For delicious recipes and all things classic Hollywood, visit my website, vanguardofhollywood.com.